Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. In our last episode, we were talking about the construction of Stonehenge, about all the work, all the effort, all the Neolithic engineering and physics that went into figuring out how to construct this uh, this amazing uh, 5,000-year-old circle of stones and uh, and just... And, and all the, the, the multi-generational effort that went into its completion. Yes, and this episode is all about the four why. Why would such an expenditure of labor on such a grand scale be carried out for so long? In the last episode, we, we mentioned the comparison, the, the very strong comparison to be made between the construction of Stonehenge and modern-day space programs. This was essentially the Neolithic space program. Now, for that to make sense, you have to think in terms of mega projects, okay? Now, we, uh, we've spoken to Neil deGrasse Tyson a couple of times, uh, on this, uh, podcast, and one of the times we talked to him, uh, he compared the space program, the, the modern human space program, to mega projects of the past, the construction of the pyramids, construction of the Great Wall, the construction of Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. These are projects that require vast amounts of energy and effort, and ultimately you have to have a lot of, uh, of, of communal energy behind it. You know, there, there's a lot of talk to be made, and, and certainly Neil deGrasse Tyson speaks a lot about the uh, uh, the waning uh, power of the idea of the space program. Like, there's not enough just public interest in it and public power to put into the, uh, the, the realization of some of our space dreams. What's interesting about this, and we'll tie this all up in a neat little bow at the end, is that that space program, the decline of it, could actually have parallels with the decline of Stonehenge. And we'll get into that, but a lot of this story here about Stonehenge has has to do with community, as you say. And there have been many, many theories that have abounded for hundreds of years as to why it was built. Um, we're talking about 12th century myths crediting the wizard Merlin oh, with okay. constructing the site. Uh, more recently, UFO believers have thought that this is perhaps some sort of ancient alien and spacecraft landing pad. Uh, but... I've also uh, read that, uh, that it might have been uh, uh, totally about the acoustics. Yeah, well, and that may be. That may be, because it turns out, I think it's the Bluestones that actually have some really nice acoustic values to them. So, but that that actually plays out in this idea of the site really um, hosting a a ton of people. We're talking about a tenth of the population in 2500 BC, Mm -hmm. this pilgrimage, the site of, of, of festivals, and this site of the living and the dead that we're all going to get into, and all of these more recent theories about its purpose have kind of dovetailed together for the sort of unified theory as Stonehenge being a place where one could observe the passing of seasons, but also the passing of souls. Yeah, because as uh, as Neil deGrasse Tyson pointed out, there are basically three ways, three things that motivate us to build things like this and do things like the space program, etc. Lame on us. One of them is war. Now, there's the idea that the whole space race uh, in our modern times was uh, was in l- large part a product of the Cold War. There was a war motivation to really push the envelope. Okay, so you could have war as ego. You could make the the argument that war is just an embodiment of ego, and certainly mm-hmm. Stonehenge could embody a certain aristocratic family or families yeah. in their ego and be a monument to them. Yeah, and of course, though, it's, it would be hard to, to argue that, I mean, nobody, as far as I know, has ever argued that Stonehenge was any kind of a fortification. It's just obviously not. Like, clearly it has some other purpose in mind. So the, the, so the two other motivations on DeGrasse's list, um, 
would be uh, you're creating something out of obligation to a god mm-hmm. or, or you know, some sort of religious, strong religious reason, or it's out of devotion to some sort of a some sort of a king. So those ideas hold a, hold a lot more weight when we're talking about the the more prominent theories regarding the construction of stories. The stories must have been so robust that they would compel people to work for that long um, over that those many thousands of years to see something come to fruition. So that part, I think, will always be a mystery to us, but we can at least look at the site, look at the information mm-hmm. we have today, and try to figure out some of the reasons why people would have congregated here. Yes. So one of the big ideas that's often pushed around and is the idea that, oh, well, Stonehenge is an astronomical observatory. Ancient man built this so they could look at the sky and figure out how the, the seasons work and, and, uh, and chart the heavens. Now, it's an idea that became a little more popular than it should have uh, been in the 60s just because you you know the, the sort of 1960s feel goodery was abounding this and there's a the, the idea that uh, that ancient man would build an observatory is uh, it's it's kind of a romantic uh, notion but uh as as we know today it really doesn't hold that much water there's like one core astronomical bit of awesomeness to stonehenge and that's really about it yeah i mean it really is a rudimentary celestial observatory maybe that's even giving it too much credit, but what we're talking about is something that Professor Clive Ruggles, he's a professor of archaeoastronomy, he says there's really only one alignment, the main axis that runs through it on the summer solstice and on the opposite end during the winter solstice sunset. Yeah, and it's important. It's an important part of the design. But saying that it's, uh, but saying a Stonehenge is an observatory because of it mm-hmm. is, it's like saying that, oh, well, this house that was designed for uh, passive solar energy mm-hmm. is an observatory. No, it's just, it's, 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 uh, it, it's not the same thing at all. And actually, the placement of Stonehenge is not random at all. You know, it's it has to do actually with the landscape itself. And Professor Parker Pearson thinks that the site was chosen because of a pair of naturally occurring parallel ridges in the landscape. And this would have been the result of Ice Age meltwater, which coincidentally points directly at the midwinter sunset in one direction and in the midsummer sunrise in the other. So if on the winter solstice your eye followed these natural channels in the earth, thousands of years ago, you would have seen the sun appearing to sit on the land as it was sitting there on the horizon and lining up perfectly with these channels in the ground. And that would have probably appeared as some sort of auspicious sign to you that this was a place that was important and perhaps we should erect something here. Yeah, you kind of have to, you know, we can we can never really fully put on the, the, the Neolithic mindset. But it's kind of in the DNA of our existing beliefs and our existing worldviews. So to, to an extent, we can just sort of, uh, we, we can understand like the, the power of, you know, winter and summer. And so, you know, spring is the return of life. Mm-hmm. Winter, fall and winter is the, the advent of death. Uh, and that, uh, and that, and night and day as well. Like these, uh, these, these, these opposites are, have always been a powerful part of, of virtually any myth building, any kind of worldview that we've constructed for ourselves throughout human history. Yeah, and as we've discussed before, cyclical time, mm-hmm. seasonal time, would have been far more important than linear time. And we, we take that for granted today that everybody has been on some sort of clock or calendar. But really, the cyclical time, the seasons, would have been important in, in marking, observing, and, and really honoring 
Yeah, one of the crazy things uh, about uh, Stonehenge that uh, that's really come to mind in researching this is that you know we'll we'll take the observatory explanation, we'll we'll paste that over it from our modern perspective, mm-hmm. or we'll paste aliens over it uh, for our modern perspective, and and but but in a way we're kind of trying to take our modern cosmological wanderings, you know, who are we and what is our place in the universe, and we're trying to to put those on an object that uh, was constructed for a Neolithic. Uh, cosmology for Neolithic questions and answers regarding their place in the universe. Yeah, exactly. So if your only experience is the land in mm-hmm. the seasons, and it's not our modern understanding of buildings and technology, then you're going to come at it in a very different way. That being said, I would I would wager to bet that everybody has that same question, no matter what period they were born in, is why am I here um, how did I get here? What what sort of story can I cobble together to make my existence make sense to me? Right. And so that's the really interesting part when you start to look at Stonehenge in terms of burial, because it turns out that there are cremains inside of Stonehenge that give us a, a little bit of a different idea of how it might have been used, not just as a burial ground, but, but perhaps these cremains point to the kind of people who were buried there and uh, what sort of prominence they had. Yeah, there's a British team led by Professor Parker Pearson, who we've mentioned already, and uh, he, he and his uh, group analyzed uh, the remains of 63 bodies buried around Stonehenge. And their findings uh, seem to suggest that the, uh, the first monument was originally a graveyard for a community of elite families, uh, and their remains would have been brought to Stonehenge and buried for over a period of, uh, for a period of more than 200 years. And that, you know, okay, that's interesting in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this idea that it, there, it's an important place because it lines up on a certain axis mm-hmm. and that people who were honored within the community, perhaps, you know, were royalty of some kind, would have been honored by being buried there. But that is only part of the story. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to sort of expand on this idea and uh, check it out. All right, we're back. So we're talking about Stonehenge. We're talking about the meaning of Stonehenge. Why did uh, did men and women put so much effort in Neolithic times into creating this structure that still, for the most part, stands with us today? It's uh, it's it's you know it's fallen here and there, but it is still a destination, and it has remained so for five thousand years of human history. Well, and the cool thing about this next section that we're going to talk about, Durrington Walls, is that the existence of something else can often bring light into the thing that you're examining. Right. Right. So for a long time, it was just thought, okay, it's the pile of rocks. That's all there is to it. Yeah, let's dig up around it. Let's see what we can come up with. And so for the longest, we didn't have any additional uh, answers. You know, it kind of brings you back to the, the, the cock snowflake, right? That uh, you can you can examine one site all you want, but right. there are only so many answers to be gleaned from that particular site. But if you can bring in another site, a connected site, then suddenly you have a number of different answers that can present themselves. And that's what has happened with yep. Stonehenge. In the form of a Neolithic settlement just two miles away from Stonehenge. This is called Durrington Walls. And it is uh, notable because it actually has evidence of timber post holes arranged in a nearly identical circular pattern constructed around the same time as Stonehenge. Yes, and that's that's key, the wood, because... Chances are no one has ever had a poster of Durrington Walls on their wall in their, <laughs> of their dorm room. Uh, you know, Stonehenge yeah. is, uh, you know, has stood the test of time. There's still st- stone uh, portions of it visible. Durrington Walls, 
made of wood. So all we have is archaeological evidence that this site existed. Yeah, and in some ways, it's uh, kind of the mirror image of Stonehenge mm-hmm. or the twin. It's also aligned with the solstices. But on the morning of the winter solstice, the timber circle will point at the rising sun. And at the end of the day, Stonehenge will be framed with the setting sun. So, and if you think about summer solstice, Stonehenge would be aligned with the sunrise, but Durrington Walls would be aligned with the sunset. Right. So it's sort of, it's neat because it kind of encompasses this idea of uh, light and dark, these two different places serving two different purposes. And we think this because there's this uh, archaeologist by the name of Remelis and Nina, and he visited Stonehenge and he thought, hmm, this, there's an interesting similarity going on here with Stonehenge and Madagascar. Because in Madagascar, you have the use of stone in burial sites only. And this is thought of as the realm of the dead, right? Yeah. And you would use um, ephemeral uh, sorts of materials for the realm of the living. The villages would be constructed out of timber, for instance. And so he began to look at this idea of Durrington Walls and Stonehenge as perhaps being interlinked in the same way, in the same sort of symbolic relationship between life and death. And there, this idea that, that Parker Pearson actually runs with a little bit more is that Durrington Walls could have been this place for weary travelers to stop off at before observing the solstice in Stonehenge, which also would have been a time to observe the passing of souls. And lo and behold, um, it even has a, a body of water that is connected into this scenario. Because we always need this, right? When we're talking right. about passing between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead, there's got to be a body of water to help the passageway. Yeah, you got to pass a river. you got to go down a river. I mean, you find it in everything from Dante's Inferno to uh, to American spiritual hymns. Uh, uh, the river is a powerful symbol just throughout human history. Yes, and so in this case, we have the River Avon. And so what's really interesting about this is that Parker Pearson said, okay, well, we think this is the theory, but we don't know unless we actually can find some evidence of a pathway from both Durrington Walls and a pathway from Stonehenge to the river. Because if if the river is connected in this story, then Mm -hmm. obviously people would have made those pathways and made it a part of ritual. Right. Lo and behold... They found it. Yes. Yes, there's plenty of evidence to show that there was a path both from Stonehenge to Avon and from uh, Durrington to Avon. Yeah, we're talking about a 30-foot avenue that was uncovered between this realm of the living and the water. And um, also evidence of eight small Neolithic houses that coincided during the same time the Sarsons were erected at Stonehenge. Now, I think you really nailed it on the head earlier when you were talking about um, the Durrington as a... uh, as a reflection of Stonehenge, as its opposite. Because you also see that in, in the, the evidence of things found there. So we found remnants of the dead at Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. We found cremains. Uh, we've also found some remains uh, at Durrington, but most of those remains are animal remains, pig remains, that evidence of massive feasts, massive barbecues. They'll find the, uh, the, the bones, for instance, will still have... Uh, uh, Will, will, will still be together in a way that represents that they were were, were buried, uh, discarded when uh, the soft material was still attached to the bone. So it's 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 pretty obvious that what happened here is some people had a massive feast. Yeah, we're talking about testing the cattle teeth from eighty thousand animal bones that were excavated in in the complex, the Stonehenge complex, and the team found that around twenty five hundred BC that would have been the site of those vast communal feasts. And more importantly, they found that the animals would have been slaughtered in the winter nine months after their spring birth, 
pointing to the midwinter solstice gathering. Yeah. So the idea is people are making a, a long pilgrimage to this Durrington site, to this uh, this place of the living, this place constructed of wood, this impermanent place in which we can live and play and feast and enjoy ourselves. And then once you have uh, you've, you've you've taken care of those needs, then you can go down the River Avon a bit. You can uh, you can uh, disembark at this other path, and you can go up to a place that is made of stone, a silent place, a place where no one's living, a place that uh, that that stands between life and death, where the the perhaps the spirits of the dead are are contacted, or and at least remembered. This and this is what is the interesting part of this is again, this is based on community. Mm-hmm. This is talking about people who are unified in this one story to observe this thing about the seasons and about what it means to be a human being and passing through on Earth at that time. And I wanted to read this quote from Professor um, Parker Pearson. He said that it was a monument, Stonehenge was a monument that brought ancient Britain together. What we found is that people came with their animals to feast at Stonehenge from all corners of Britain, as far afield as Scotland. It was built soon after the appearance of the first pan-British culture, the only time in prehistory that the people of Britain were unified. So in a way, you could, you know, not to make this all sort of rosy-colored um, time period, but you could say that this was perhaps a peaceful time yeah, um, in which people really were on the same page here. And certainly if you read anything about the history of, of Britain, you know that, that, that there has been plenty of strife uh, since those days, just pretty much almost constant strife. Uh, I guess we're more or less in recent times where it's, it's a little calmer there in the British Isles. But but still, there's plenty to argue about there as well. Strife has abounded. Yeah. Uh, Professor Parker Pearson believes the decline is explained by the culture of the Beaker people, uh, known to have arrived in these areas, these the Isles around the time. He believes that their greater individualism mm-hmm. and new material goods, including the first metal goods seen in Britain, put an end to the communal culture for which the monument had originally been created. So what he's talking about is that people were no longer interested in being buried in a more communal sense. Mm-hmm. But now we're talking about really the the sort of uh, focus on material goods and metals and wanting to be buried with your stuff. Individual exceptionalism sort of taking over. So they essentially crashed the, the ancient hippie party uh, right. in Britain. <laughs> these, these jerks show up who are self-obsessed, who are carrying metal instruments of death with them, and uh, so suddenly they uh, they make uh, quick work of the existing uh, populations. Now, is that a perfect parallel to the space program? Perhaps not, but no. there is this <laughs> idea that there is more of a, a turning toward individualism and away from community. Yeah, 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 certainly, because it, with the space program, you you know, it, it, with anything on that scale, like people have to believe in it. Or in the case of the pyramids, enough people have to believe in it to enslave other people to do the work for them. Right. Uh, and that's why this is ultimately a much, uh, our under, as far as our understanding of Stonehenge goes, it's, it's a much happier mega project than, uh, than, than pretty much anyone I can think of, you know? Because yeah. like I said, there's not really a war angle here. There's not a slavery angle here. There are people working to build this thing that is the physical manifestation of of their belief, of their idea, of their view, uh, and there's there's something just infinitely beautiful about that. Like they they form this idea of what life is and how it works, about the importance of community, about the importance of their ancestors, and they made a physical site that em- empowers that. 
It, I mean, and it, it continues, right? It's yeah. extant, and that's pretty amazing. Um, I also wanted to mention, if I haven't already, that Stonehenge predates the pyramids in Egypt. So, um, nice. again, this is a huge undertaking. Um, and I would love to hear from you guys if you have been to Stonehenge, because I hear tale told of, I think, twice a year, summer solstice and winter solstice, in which people are actually able to walk through Stonehenge. Otherwise, it's something like uh, you're roped off 30 yards away. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Like I, when you touch that, is, do you do you feel something? Not because there's you know ancient alien energy resonating through it, but more in terms of like the the, the Stendhal syndrome that we've discussed before. Yeah, uh, bringing all of your ideas about Stonehenge with you. Like, what kind of experience do you have there? Uh, I haven't looked at any any of the data, but I, I I wonder if there is a Stonehenge syndrome that takes place. That would be fascinating yeah. to find out if someone felt crushed by the weight of history and man. Yeah, because you know you're getting some kooky people show up for that. You know there's some some alien hunters showing up. You know there's some some very mystical individuals showing up. And you know if you bring that mindset of mysticism if, with you, if you bring that mindset of alien visitations with you, then then it can be an overpowering uh, situation to to yeah. actually touch those stones. Yeah, and I've read that um, it is a place of worship for druids, but. The fact of the matter is, is that Stonehenge was erected 2,000 years before uh, Druid people began to actually really worship and form their ideas. All right, so there you have it, Stonehenge. Well, we tackled it in two parts again because we felt you really need to needed to understand the the challenges of building Stonehenge and the mysteries that we've had to tackle uh, regarding how Neolithic man uh, built it uh, to fully understand the mysteries regarding why they built it. Yeah, and uh, if you ever have anything that seems terribly difficult or prolonged in front of you that you need to do, just think about Stonehenge. Yeah. Hey, it's not Stonehenge. This is something I can do in my lifetime. Exactly. All right. Uh, we would love for you to get in touch with us. Yeah, and if you want to do so, you can find us at all the usual places. Our main haunt is StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Uh, it is the, the Stonehenge of our world, uh, constructed uh, over the course of... Uh, months. months, yeah, and uh, there you will find uh, portals, gateways to the magical realms of our uh, our our Twitter account, our Facebook account, our Tumblr account, SoundCloud, YouTube, Google Plus, uh, and more importantly, StuffToBlowYourMind.com is the place where you find all of our podcasts, all of our blogs, all of our videos, all that good stuff. And if you'd like to drop us a line, you can do so at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 